podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Let's start with Patreon questions. Christopher says, if cricket go, uh, if cricket does go down a strong red and white ball split, how do we, uh, how do we do talent ID and develop players to work out what system pathway they'd be suited to, and how long do you wait? Thinking for those players like Archer and Bairstow who suit all formats, well, that will just play so much cricket in all formats. Well, I think if they, if they actually split, that's not really how it's going to work anyway, because you're going to have the red ball, which will probably be completely split from the white ball at that point. Um, I don't know what how. Let's forget one day cricket for a minute, but T20 and Test cricket are certainly at one point or another going to completely split. There will still be a big enough crowd and enough money to be made from Test cricket that it will continue. I don't know as much about one day cricket, if we're being honest. And so I don't think there's any problem with, with that happening. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that there will be like a pathway because it will mean that people will sort of filter into those different things on their own. And I've talked about this before. I mean, you see this in car racing. Uh, people do lots of different versions of car racing. Um, they don't just do uh, one, uh, you know, that maybe you, let's say Grand Prix, and I have no idea if this is true, but let's say Grand Prix pays their drivers the most. That might be the IPL, for instance, but there's monster truck car racing and there's, you know, muscle car racing and there's indie cars and, you know, there's, um, uh, you know, the Dakar rally and all those different things that you still need all the basic skills of being able to race a car to be able to do. And I think cricket's going to be like that. So I don't think, I think if it really splits, um, I don't think that's a problem. If it only half splits, players are going to choose what they're going to want to choose anyway, um, re- sort of regardless of what anyone else wants. Um, I think of that of maybe maybe if you grew up in, trying to think maybe somewhere where rugby league and rugby union are quite strong, you know, you might play both even when you're a kid and you might be better suited to rugby union, but you might like rugby league more or vice versa. You're probably still going to go towards that. Um, and that's kind of how the world works. The only thing that is different here, Christopher, is that it's all one sport at the moment, but it may not always be one sport um, in the way that it's run at the least. And I think that might solve certainly some of the problems uh, when you look at uh, what, what cricket has today. Ian says, how big can the Commonwealth Games be for women's international cricket? And will the men not taking part enhance or detract from the profile the women's tournament gets? Probably helps the women, doesn't it? Because if anyone's going to talk about the cricket, it's going to be them. And it's, I think it's something that cricket is in the Commonwealth Games. I, I should point out at this point that I don't really care about the Commonwealth Games at all, even slightly. Um, absolutely uninterested as um, in them as a general concept so for me it's hard to say i think for women's cricket though uh i haven't talked to any administrators in women's cricket but i'm assuming that it would help with funding it would help with training facilities uh it would help with um uh, uh, we've just done a podcast i don't think it's out yet it must be next week's red inca uh, about the history of pakistani women's cricket them winning the Asian games really helped women's cricket in Pakistan, even though India and Sri Lanka, I think, neither of them were in those games. But the fact that Pakistan did win that tournament still meant that they came home with gold medals at a time when, you know, uh, women's cricket, uh, other women athletes from Pakistan weren't getting a lot of gold medals. That gets you attention. You've got, I think it's the, and I've now forgotten her name, um, is one of the Pakistan players, I think, is carrying the flag. I'm trying to think if that's happening in one of the other countries as well. These are big things, right? These are big, important things in the development of women's cricket. So I've got absolutely no problem with that. I would have no problem with the men playing in the Commonwealth Games. I can understand why the certainly the major six nations are probably like, we don't need to do it. Um, and I personally probably don't think that it needs to be in there. I much prefer it to be in the Olympics um, or almost anything else. Uh, but um, 
I've got no problem with, with with cricket being there. I followed it when it was there in, I want to say, 98 in Malaysia, 96 in Malaysia, 97 in Malaysia, whenever it was in Malaysia. Um, uh, when Brad Young got a hat trick and uh, South Africa won, I was going to say, it's won the only thing they've ever won at a sort of mini global type event. Viv Richards carried the flag. I think Viv Richards carried the flag in that Commonwealth Games. Um, so, look, I think... There's certainly, um, I think for women's cricket, you, you have to think about for, from more from a ground up perspective. They may not get a huge amount of publicity from this, but the countries who get golds will certainly, uh, you know, get attention. There will be countries that will probably give a little bit of extra funding or the women's players will be treated a little bit better for a couple of weeks of the year than they generally are. Whatever those things are, I think it's a good thing for women's cricket. Plus, a lot of women's teams just don't play a lot of top level competitive cricket. Um, you look at Bangladesh women, I think it was pre-COVID just didn't seem to play much. The Sri Lankan women just have not played a lot. The more cricket that some of these women's teams can get, I think the better. Um, Cameron says, sort of following on from the podcast on too much cricket, which is the last red inker, I think. Oh, which came out like yesterday. Oh, depending on what day. Came out on Wednesday. I keep remembering I record these on different days and they go up. Um, Cameron says, I watch a lot of baseball games uh, pretty much every day for limited season. Interested to hear your thoughts on this with cricket. A season of, say, six to nine months where all the cricket is condensed. Well, the biggest problem there, Cameron, is that baseball is a league in one country. Part of the reason it's a six to nine month window. I don't know how long baseball goes for, actually. I should know that. But um, it's because those are the months in which you can play baseball easier. Um how would you do that in cricket when you've got Northern Hemisphere, you've got a Southern Hemisphere, you've got countries that never have winter um, but do have rainy seasons and you have countries that have quite substantial winter like New Zealand and England. Um, I don't think it's possible. Uh, you would also, the Southern Hemisphere, so Australia, New Zealand and South Africa would want it to cover their summer England would want it to cover their summer. Um, so you've already got a bit of a clash there. Don't think the other countries are as worried about their summer, but there are there are certain times of the year that different nations really want to, you know, focus on their cricket. Um, also, it doesn't really work. Like in that sort of situation, where does a three-month IPL fit into that? So the problem really isn't the calendar in, in that sort of sense. The problem is that no one is in charge. There's too much cricket that doesn't matter. There's too much cricket that's being played to pay boards wages rather than for the betterment of the game. There's not enough systems in place to ensure that the best players are fully fit when they are available. Um, there's no government oversight. There's no one league, all these sorts of things. I think it's far more important than trying to do a winter, uh, trying to do a season. I just don't think a season works for a, I mean, I know we don't always think about it, but it's a global sport, right? There's a lot of different continents involved. What are we up to? Five continents in test cricket alone. Um, uh, you know, if we get the Brazilian women's team into test cricket, um, we're up to six, right? So there's a lot of cricket in a lot of different regions. And I don't think having that kind of a system would work. It's not the only 12-month sport either. Um, obviously, golf, tennis uh, are both now pretty much 12-month sports as well. So it's not just a cricket problem. Um, it's uh, In cricket's place, I think it's almost fundamentally a um, organizational slash systemic slash no one's in charge problem. Uh, Nort says, who... In your opinion, is the best English qualified player in counter cricket right now who's destined never to play for England? Oh, that's a good one. Does Darren Stevens count? Um, well, Jamie Porter would be quite high up there, Noughts, I think. Um, I mean, he's a phenomenal bowler. Maybe he gets a test one day. I kind of, if he keeps taking, you know, has one of those late career surges at the right time, I find it hard to see he's going to play um, I'm trying to think some of the batters. I think, well, I mean, they've kind of gone through most of the batters, haven't they? Three wicket keepers, perhaps coming through all the spinners. 
Yeah, I would have thought most of the batters, unless there's, I mean, there's obviously, um, uh, you know, someone like Hildreth. Is he, is he still playing? I should know that. Um, uh, who's never going to play. I think Jamie Porter has the, has the possibility of having a Glenn Chapel-like career um, and probably never getting a game for, for England. Uh, and he's a phenomenally talented player. I think if there's anyone else that that I'm missing, I mean, you really, I think with England now, you really look at those medium, fast, skillful bowlers. I mean, Tim Murta probably would have been one incredible bowler, um, but clearly never going to play Test cricket for England. Has gone on to play Test cricket for Ireland. Um, trying to think if there's anyone else in that sort of ilk, but I, th I think that's generally. I mean, I, I was going the Glen Chapel rule. I mean, if you look at Jamie Porter, I've watched him bowl a bit, not. A huge amount, but certainly quite a bit. There's no doubt in my mind that he is a test quality bowler in the same way that Chad Sayers was and, you know, barely played a test for Australia. Um, it's just not that generation. Um, having, I think if you're going to be that sort of Sayers or Porter type bowler now, you need to be almost a Ollie Robinson or Vernon Philander or Muhammad Abbas level talent with the ball where you can kind of do everything with the ball at any time. Um, and I don't think those guys are quite on that sort of level. So um, he's the one that sticks out. Um, obviously, Darren Stevens is another really interesting one in that um, for many different reasons. Um, I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head. Um, certainly no spinners is there. So, yeah, I'll, I'll probably go with, with him. He's, the, he's certainly the one that's right there with me. James says, uh, with last week's question, I probably overcomplicated a little bit with the reference to Elise Perry. It was really just supposed to be how how people say cricket when they specifically mean men's game and not the women's. I think, James, this probably says more about you and the people that you're talking to um, than anything else. I don't mean that in a bad way. But within the women's game, they don't say women's cricket every time they're talking about women's cricket. They quite often say cricket when they mean women's cricket. Um, so I think there is certainly a much larger default to have that towards men than towards women. And we've already started to see that, you know, this move towards the men's hundred, the women's hundred, the men's world cup, the women's world cup. Um, we're getting to all that. I, I kind of, in my videos, I, I would never want to spend the entire time in my video saying men's whatever and women's whatever. In the same way, I don't, if the video is about test cricket, I don't keep continually keep saying test. Um, and unless I'm switching between the formats for whatever reason. And the real reason for all that is that it's just clunky. And, you know, it's, it's a bit like, I remember when women's cricket started to get quite big and there was this big movement for people to say batswoman. And it's like, it's a terrible phrase. It's just, it doesn't come out of your mouth correctly. And I think that's why something like batter works quite well. If you're talking about women's cricket, I kind of have no problem with you not saying women's cricket if, you know, it's quite obvious that you're talking about women's cricket. The bigger problem, of course, is that, you know, women's cricket needs as much attention as it can. But I don't think that every time you say the word cricket, if you're talking about something, you need to put men or women on the end. Um, there are little things that I do think you need to do. For instance, um, if you were to say, uh, you know, I think we say, you know, the best player in the power play. We should probably say the best man in the power play or the best woman in the power play. I think that sort of stuff is probably quite fair. Um, you know, a bit like, you know, it was, was it Sachin who made the first double century in a one day for men, but obviously Belinda Clark made the first one in women. It's weird. I know that Belinda Clark won more than the men's one, but, um, you know, and that's a perfect example of, you know, he's made the first double century in, in one day internationals. And it's like, well, he hasn't. He's the first man to make it. And I think that's more than fine. And if you start to do that automatically, um, I think that's a much better system, but also think that at a certain point you don't need to cram man or woman into every single sentence. And that's maybe more of a, I think, I think inclusivity is absolutely brilliant. And I, and there's absolutely no doubt that changing it from batsman to batter has made nothing but a positive impact on cricket and will probably go on to have a positive impact on cricket for many years past the people who are moaning about it, even though it's been said for about 50 years. Um, but there are certain things that are just clunky and harder to say and, you know, maybe don't trip off the tongue as well. Um, but, you know, there, we still say third man. Um, 
despite the fact that cricket is called third, um, people still use the racist name for left arm wrist spinners, right? Um, uh, I'm trying, you know. So those things, there are still lots of things. We still say maiden. Will we still be saying maiden in ten years' time? Be really interesting um, to see if if we will um, if we're being honest. So uh, it wasn't what was it up until ten years ago? It was called Irish swing almost as much as it was called reverse swing. So we are sort of filtering out those sorts of unnecessary things from our game. And I suppose the next thing that we have to do is be more and more proactive. But I think cricket's done a pretty good job. I think that laws are um, are quite proactive with all that sort of thing as well. Um, I think most of the complaints are usually Twitter profile, uh, Twitter Twitter accounts from major publications who you've got some, you know, poor intern more often than not, or if not, someone very young in that job just making a mistake, not even thinking about it. Uh, just but back before, who in your honest opinion is the Engl- the best English qualified player? So Nortz's, Nort, that was Nortz's question. Uh, Oren just in the chat has said, Sam Northis. I did think about him actually, when I was going through it. I think Sam Northeast is a phenomenally talented player. He sat in this chair, in fact. He did a test um, recording for us for 99.94. Lovely guy. I'm not sure that he's the best English qualified player in counter cricket who's never de- who's destined never to play for England. I could be wrong because of Porter. Um, but he's certainly up there. I mean, I, I don't think anyone would, would argue that. He's, I, he's an incredible player, but I don't think he's the best, but he should be, he's very close to that conversation. Aditya said, how would you fix the overrate issue in cricket? Clearly the system right now is not working. Deducting match fees or even banning captains hasn't worked. Well, part of the reason that doesn't work, Aditya, is because isn't the bowler's fault that it's slow. Batters take almost as many breaks as anyone else. We have soft balls. We have uh, technology problems. We have uh, in an amazing amount of drinks breaks. Um, batters are never rushed by umpires. Fielding teams are purposely trying to bowl slow. There are so many deductions and times that you you can do. Um, they don't want to fix it is the simple answer. I, it's, I would go as far to say now is there are a couple of people at the ICC who care. I think most cricket boards around the world would prefer the game to go an extra half an hour. They don't want to fix it. They don't really care. They don't make the majority of their money off ticket sales anyway, the boards. Um, so they don't want to. I can give you a hundred ways that you could fix it, but they're not going to be used. Um, and I've probably written them before. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but um, I'm sure I've written all these before. But I think the most important thing that Creek fans need to understand at this point is they don't want to fix it. They don't care. That's why it happens. And I don't see that changing. Uh, I've just got a couple more from the Patreons. Ross says, if we're doing, if we're going to rate spinners on wickets divided by how far they spun the ball metric, I'm guessing that Dan Vittori comes out on tops for tests. Who are you liking in other formats? No, Ross. I, I mean, Anil Kumble would sh- surely be the po- person um, who comes out the most uh, as far as not spinning the ball at all. Anil Kumble would probably come out pretty close in one day cricket too, I would have thought. Maybe early Adam Zampa would have been an interesting one as well. I think he spins the ball a bit more now than he used to. Who bowls straight in T20s? I'm wondering if Ashwin bowls a lot of straight balls in T20s. Although I suppose when he spins it, he still can spin it, can't he? Akshar Patel, Akshar Patel doesn't spin the ball very much. Um, it's an interesting question, but no, I think I think Kumble would probably win Test and the One Day Prize, um, and then uh, and then in T20s. I suppose we've got a host of spinners, Ross, in T20s that don't really spin it that much, but I'm trying to think of one who specifically took a lot of wickets. Maybe Johan Bota might be an interesting one on that, actually. Played a lot of cricket. Um, and after he was called for, for chucking, he really doesn't spin it that much. So, yeah, a really interesting one. Um, I, th- I think we, we might need quick viz for that. But James says, people often assume that the bigger population, the bigger talent pool Uh high expected performance at the national team. But there is there a point of diminishing returns for this system, uh, given that you can only put 11 people on the field? And if the bigger talent pool requires a more complex talent ID and development pipeline, does it actually become harder to end up with the best 11 on the field or does it all sort of balance out in practice? Okay, so I think the best thing to, to, to sort of sort yourself out on that would be, James, that you always want more people to be able to pick from. I had a 
I remember early on when I worked with Scotland and they were really proud of their talent development system. And they were like, yeah, we don't have a lot of people, but we have this group and we know that they like cricket and we develop from them. And I was like, I get all that. But if Steve Smith's in, an, in another town and you don't have a talent development system there because you can't afford it, you miss out on Steve Smith, right? So I do think that is really important. I do think this system of developing cricketers is very important. We have a lot of very good cricketers who come from the associate countries throughout the history of the game, but very few of them would have been dominant at test level if you just at the age of 21 moved them from their country to a test playing nation. Not to say they wouldn't have had good careers, but because they didn't have that same level of development that other players did, I think they would have struggled with that. Um, the only player, I think he was mentioned last week on this chat, that is obvious to me is sort of Basil Dolivera, who sort of did skip development training altogether, but was obviously that naturally gifted and saw cricket in such a brilliant way that maybe it didn't matter as much to him. But I do think that, you know, when you get these great players from Fiji or um, America, you know, you know, so, so, you know like, um, and they come from out of that system, um, from Denmark, um, what's his name? Oli, um, oh God, I should remember, I was just writing about him the other day, but um, those sorts of players, I think they'd be even better if they came through a stronger culture, right? I think that's really important. And that that is going to exist in any country that has a decent amount of cricketers coming through, right? So that is why New Zealand still have the ability to be able to do that because they have this strong structure of junior cricket, club cricket, school cricket, or, you know, all the way through to first class cricket. It may not be, they may not have as many cricketers as you have on the Oval Maidan in Mumbai at the moment, but they're playing very good structured cricket with proper coaches uh, within a system that is proven to make test match and international players. You'd still rather be India. I know Bharat Sundarasan talks about, you know, the, the, the conditions that especially New Zealand cricketers have. I think he also talks about Australian cricketers compared to Indian cricketers. It's so much better, and then obviously it helps them develop and you know uh, in a different way. But there still is a great structure of, within Indian cricket, and there are so many people over there. If you're a, if you're a talent scout, you're probably not going to go to New, New Zealand. You're probably still going to go to India or to Sri Lanka or to um, Pakistan or to Bangladesh, just because of the sheer number of people playing cricket, even if they're playing on a more rudimentary level. Uh, when they're younger because a lot of them don't play with cricket balls and, and all those sorts of things. I think that's all fair. But so I do think in the long term, you're still better off to have that. That said, I, I've said this basically almost from the time the IPL got big, if I was running the BCCI and I don't know where all the money goes, as I often say, I would have $40 million academies right across India at the moment because you do need that side of it. But when you say, does it wash out on the field? I do think, especially if, if you look at New Zealand's rise over the last couple of years, and even if you go back to Richard Hadley, if you have one absolutely killer test match bowler, whether it be Richard Hadley, um, uh, uh, Fazal Mahmood, um, Murali, just one great test match bowler, you can be a very, very good cricket team with average players sort of beneath them. If you look at New Zealand and you suddenly have Wagner, Bolt and Southie for a long period of time, all at a similar age group, you could get past a lot of things. But if you want to be a consistent team from decade to decade to decade to decade, I would assume then that's where this uh, bigger talent pool is massively important. And also chances of finding more freakish athletes. And, and, and you know, the one thing that I think that, Western cricket culture struggle with is finding cricketers who are, and Neil Wagner is a really interesting one because he is one of them, um, but he had to go between two countries. But I think there's a real problem with some of those things to be able to get absolutely masses of talent coming in um, that is different. So what you get in the West Indies, what you get in Sri Lanka, what you can get in India and Pakistan is people that bring in new skills because they come in from outside that system, but still within a general framework of a lot of cricket. 
And I think what happens in, in some of the other uh, places is very hard to break into some of the Western, more Western countries framework because everyone's got to do the, do it this way. Um, so there is an advantage, there's a lot of different advantages, but as a general rule, I would always start with a bigger talent pool. I'd rather have that problem than the other problem. Uh, let's have a look. All right, we've got some great, oh, well, I don't know if they're great questions. I'm assuming they're going to be some great questions, but good questions there and, and some great questions there on Patreon as well. Alan, are you there, mate? Hello. Hey, mate, what's your question? Where do you see kind of Irish first-class cricket going? Or is it even going like, to restart in the next few years? Yeah, I, um, I had a big chat with a couple of people in English cricket recently who, they were talking about Dutch team, actually. But they were saying they can't see the Dutch team making the jump that it needs to make if they're playing their cricket back home. And I remember talking to Warren Dutram 2012, I reckon it was, Alan. And I was like, why not push your players towards county cricket? Uh, and you look at the Dutch system and you've got, when they play during their summer, the, so many of their players can't play because they're in the county system. And that means when they're actually playing, the best players aren't playing for the Netherlands. But they are developing probably better than they would in a Dutch first-class system, right? So Ireland has gone with that other model. Uh and I thought even back in the day that Bangladesh probably should have tried to join, you know, the Indian um, uh, domestic scene or, or Sri Lankan, you know, whatever they could have done. But they went with their own model as well. The, I, I think the, the strength of that model is certainly that you can control the players. You know, so, so Andy Belburney, not Andy Belburney, um, Andy McBrien is batting at number three for, is it Leinster, Alan? You'll know this. Oh, Alan's gone. Um, Andy McBride bats up the order. Is it Leinster? I think it's one of the northern teams. Yeah, yeah. So he bats up the order, which means if you think about him, they need him to have those skills because they're struggling with batters at the moment. There's no county in England that's going to bat him in number three, right? It's just not going to happen. They have the ability to develop the, those players exactly the way they want to develop them, which is a huge advantage uh, when it comes to that first-class structure. The problem is, as you and I know, they don't really have any money, right? Um, Irish cricket hasn't made the money that it's wanted to over the last four or five years. It got scammed out of money. Um, I was talking to them recently. It, it still feels like money is that everyday problem for them. You know, I mean, you talk to Netherlands and Scotland and they would wish to have Ireland's money problems, but money is still a big issue for them. So can they make that first-class system what it should be anyway, right? And so it's obviously that... What, what would you say? It's the, it's the big punt that they made a long time ago that they were going to do that. And if you remember, Alan, it took ages for like people like, I remember talking to Gary Wilson about when are you going to stop playing counter cricket? And he's like, well, I'm going to play counter cricket as long as I can play it. And then I'll go back to Ireland. I think you're now seeing probably generations of Irish cricketers who, to be fair, are investing themselves a little bit more in, in the Irish domestic system. But the money's not really there. This, it's not strong enough at the moment. It's probably, it's probably more of a high-end club system than a proper first-class system, which is it's still a high-end club system. So they're getting towards it. I, I don't know when it starts to pay the dividends, but I think that you know, watching what's happened with the Netherlands, I'd kind of rather that Ireland tried to develop their own players over, let's say, a 10, 15, 20-year period, and it doesn't work, rather than not being able to pick their best players because they're all playing counter cricket and they're getting paid more money. Um, so it may not always work. Obviously, COVID completely screwed Ireland cricket up as well. They were probably one of the hardest hit major boards in the world. So the finances don't work as well. The actual structure of the competition is not ideal, but it's tough. The last thing is, do you know, like, do you know is it going to restart anytime soon? Maybe this year or next year? Yeah, that I don't know. I mean, I haven't... I, I was... Oh, I mean, I was going to go to Bristol um, and chat to a bunch of them, but I'm now commentating from London um, on those series. So, and and I haven't really sent a message to, you know, Warren or Richard or anyone else, but I would assume it's going to have to start from next, I mean, they're not going to start it this year, are they? Would be my guess. Um, yeah, I mean, I have, I have I, to be honest, I just haven't chatted to anyone there. I would think if, what are we in now? Are we in August yet? I should know the date. 
it's incredible the amount of knowledge I have in my head and I can't tell you what part of the year we're in. But I would assume um, anything they do now would be quite short anyway. So um, I think I think at, at that time it's um, I think it's probably a bit too late. But thanks for your question, mate. Jamie, you there? Hello. Hey, mate. What's your question? Hey, hello. Um, so I was. This is a response to your um, red inker on there being too much cricket. Mm-hmm. It got me thinking about an equivalency a bit with the NFL. Got me thinking about Andrew Luck. That story of him, really good talent, came out, um, but then didn't get protected by his team. He had an awful offensive line with him. And he just got basically beaten up and, and had to retire early. People have said, oh, he should, he should sue them. He should, you know, take his head coach to court and nonsense like this. But I was wondering about applying that to, to our game, whether any bowler that you know of has ever sort of threatened to take his coach to court for being overbowled or anything like that. Or could you see anything like that happening in the future? Nathan Bracken sued Cricket Australia. Don't believe it was for being overbold, but it was. I'm trying to remember the full details of it. Certainly, there's absolutely no doubt that there was issues about the way he was handled, which I think, to be fair, Cricket Australia have changed the way they handle fast bowlers after that, probably on the back of that. Um, but he certainly sued Cricket Australia, but I can't remember the full details. Um there's certainly been behind-the-scenes payments to major players in world cricket, which have come from injuries where they where that team pushed them to play while they were injured, and it meant that they had to retire early. That's happened. The best one, I think, um, uh, uh, Jamie, would be um, Ryan Sidebottom, who they encouraged to bowl as fast as he could, and it shortened his international cricket career by what let's be friendly and say three years maybe longer like he was still playing first class cricket for a long time after then but they if he bowled at his natural pace rather than trying to push himself every time he bowled an international delivery um i think he probably sticks around i mean he was basically the same pace as jaminda vas and they were trying to get him to bowl 90 miles an hour regularly um so it does happen um you've obviously got the joffre situation um I always look back to the Pat Cummins one. is one of the more interesting ones. Pat Cummins bowled, I want to say, 62 overs in a, for, for a, in a Sheffield Shield final for New South Wales against Tasmania on a flat pitch um, and played, what, two more first-class games in the next five years. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I suppose what would the legality of it be? It would be my question. Can you – you don't have to bowl – but there's also a lot of pressure on you to bowl. You don't want to be the guy who doesn't want to bowl. Um, there's also people playing with all sorts of injuries. Um, you know, wicket keepers playing with, you know, broken fingers and that can end their career. Um, I, so, yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. It, a lot of it depends. Uh, sports law or the laws around sports players is a little bit tricky. I wonder if you have to go to so court of arbitration of sport I don't know how many times cricketers have gone through that. I think there's been a couple of cases, um, but I wonder if you have to go through there. But it's a very, it's a very, very good point. And I think, especially when it comes to fast bowlers, there are a lot of fast bowlers who have been treated poorly and have probably ended up with far shorter careers. I think you might find that occasionally, I, I can't think of a fast bowler off the top of my head, but I think you might find occasionally they might, be able to go to the cricket board directly. Now, not all the cricket boards are going to help them, but I definitely have heard of players who have made a case to the cricket board to say, well, wait a minute, I can't walk now, or I may never be able to walk again. You guys wanted me to play these last three tests. You knew I was like this. Um, and then and then have a look at that. So those sort of things have happened. As far as actually actual lawsuits Bracken is the only major one I can think of, but I'm sure there are others out there that I'm missing. Great question, though, mate. Who have we got next? God. Vivek, you there? Yes. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I've got you, mate. All right. Hi, Ajar. Long fan. I have. It's, it's more of a 
it's a question that comes from a place of frustration, I guess. Uh, you know, we've seen a shift in the way batting and bowling roles are seen now, especially in like white ball cricket. And it's, it's shifted over the last, what, 30 years of white ball cricket, 50 years of white ball cricket. And we've seen like special selection that have come into play in white ball cricket as well for bowlers, more than batsmen. And when it comes to test cricket, uh, you know, when the latter criteria, picking for conditions, only seems to apply to bowlers rather than batsmen. And like this, when picking horses for courses, bowling lineups are like chopped and changed a lot. But batsmen are treated like these sacred meditative cows who cannot be touched unless they get huddled or scared. So I guess, I don't know, my, I guess my real question is uh, are bowlers horses and batsmen cows? <laughs> Why is that my big willing to change batting language based on conditions when you know the batsmen might chase like? Big bouncy boy again, and you you still date them to South Africa or Australia. Yeah, no, I think I think bowlers are probably horses and cows, and batters are farmers. I think is the analogy you're looking for there, uh, because the the batters are in charge, right? So that's where it comes from. I think it does come from an inbuilt bias in our game. I've talked about this before. It literally comes from the English class system. Uh, back in the old days, the amateurs were more often um, to be the batters. And the professionals more, more often to be the bowlers. Even look at England now; the majority of their bowlers don't come from the uh, their, or the majority of their fast bowlers certainly don't come from private schools. The majority of their batters do. There's still an element of it within the game. Um, you look at Sri Lanka; is another country that has that. Um, you know, so that it's not it's not like a one-off thing, right? It's built into our game that batters are are that you're more special. But you're right. Um, it's real. It, I remember. I mean, you look through the numbers. It is really rare to find a player who doesn't have a weak spot in a particular country. Um, you know, on particular kinds of pitches. Maybe it's particular kind of bowlers, uh, or whatever that may be. And we're getting better and better at being able to identify batters' weak spots. And yet, we don't seem to be at a point where we change things up enough. Um, you know, there's that. I think that's that chapter in Nathan Lehman and Ben Jones's book about um, Australia keeps sending left-handers to India, right? And India just picks a bunch of off spinners, and Australia can't do anything. Right? Like it doesn't. There are very obvious, easy fixes that can be done. Uh, that it doesn't seem to. It doesn't seem to quite filter down the way it should uh, when it comes to selection. Whereas bowlers, you know. Someone like someone like Mark Wood only bowls when the pitch is absolutely in his favour, um, apparently, and we just have to take their word on it, which is fine. I'm more than happy to agree with that if, if England have done their research, but they don't seem to do that with their batters. A, a, a very good example with England was, I think this is true, Keaton Jennings has a really good record in Asia and never made any runs for England outside of Asia. And when he got dropped, there was no thought to bring him back for future Asian tours. And the, my, the part of my head was like, and I've, I, Australia did similar things with Sean Marsh at times. And I was like, I just think that you should pick them when they're best suited. And even if they make hundreds, say to them, look, at the moment, we still don't see you as an all-format player. If that was a bowler, I think it would be, it's still a tough blow, but I think it happens just doesn't seem to be, if it's a batter and you've made hundreds, you just seem to be kept around forever. Um, I think we saw, you know, with England, there was a good one with Ben Folks where he made the hundreds in Asia and everyone was like, oh, what a player he is. And we've seen him outside Asia, and although his batting seems to have improved a little bit of this year, although that could be the softballs. But um, outside of Asia, he didn't look like the same player. He, that's fine. That's a thing that is going to happen to a lot of players. And it's not just Asia, is it? It's going to be all sorts of different kinds of conditions, different kinds of bowling attacks. Um, and it doesn't feel to me at the moment that we're sensible when picking batting lineups. I, I mean, you probably heard me say this on this podcast a hundred times, but I really think that you should be picking from the best 17 or 18 players consistently. Um, and the way we pick cricket teams of this, this holy 11 is kind of nonsense. Uh, thanks for your question though, man. Kyle, you there? Hi, Jared. Hey, mate. What's your question? Um, I was thinking uh, about a month ago about this. It's been about a year since the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, and 
Um, you know, I can read about what's happening in the country, but less so about what's happening with their uh, cricket. Um, do you have an update as far as what the status? I know they had a tumultuous World Cup, um, but you know what it's like for the international players, the domestic players, and the the women's team. Um, it's not good. I mean, it wasn't good for the women's team before the Taliban. Um, so, so there's that to start with. My, my understanding from friends of mine who work in and around Afghanistan and cricket is that things have been tougher, but not as bad as some of them thought it was going to be. I think their initial worry was that, that because it's the biggest sporting team in the country, the Taliban would take a huge interest in the team. My current understanding is that's not been the case, but there's no doubt that there's extra problems. When you the, the last World Cup was a big problem, you've got to remember that if you go back and read my piece from the 2019 World Cup, they were a shit show before. The organizational structure, they had players sent home, you know, uh, Gulbadeen was made captain almost despite the senior players. Um, they had a player who, you know, I wrote about, we, we still don't even know what he got up to but certainly did a lot of things he shouldn't have been involved with um uh so it was an absolute shit show before the taliban i can't imagine anything's better interesting i've I've seen some things from the taliban where i think they do see cricket as a bit of a what's the best way of putting it a bit of a um good pr yeah yeah um my worry is that when that happens, generally politicians try and get involved with the cricket team, you know, whether that's Boris Johnson or John Howard or whoever. Um, that's what I worry. I worry about that. It's almost, you almost want your cricket team to be not that popular um, so the politicians don't get involved. But as it currently stands, I don't think it's the doomsday scenario that we thought beforehand. But I think the the impact of it long-term is still going to be really negative. Um and there's no getting around that. It's not, you know, it's and it's not the only country in the world. Like, you know, Sri Lankan women's cricket has fallen off the map and what it probably needs is some government help. And, you know, I don't know if you're following the news. It's not going particularly well. Um, you know, Pakistan had a chance of really changing their first-class setup for the good, and instead they went with a system from 1985 Australia, right? So there's, you know, political interference or p- lack of political interference can be a problem um, in, in these points. I don't think... I I worry that the future of Afghanistan cricket is freelance players. That's my worry from the Taliban, that they can move to Dubai, um, that they can move to India, that they can move to Pakistan and p- play careers as freelancers and they don't represent their nation enough. Um, and that would be my... My big fear. I don't think the. I don't think they're going to struggle to produce players because in that eastern part of the country, cricket is just so absolutely strong. And if it ever spreads to the sort of the the west or the central part of Afghanistan, then they'll just find more and more cricketers. So I'm not too worried about it from a talent perspective. Development wise, women wise, um, you know that that is an issue. But I haven't heard anything specifically bad for a little while. Um, but I also haven't heard anything good, if that makes sense, Kyle. Yeah, no, it does. I uh, just wondered if you had it up there. And that's, yeah, that's interesting. No worries. Thanks, mate. Thank you. What have we got here? Keshav, you there? Yep. Hi, Jared. Can you hear me? I can. What's your question, mate? Yeah, so... Um... You know, just uh, what's been happening recently with uh, the hoopla around the ODI format, uh, South Africa forfeiting the series, which actually had points in Australia. On the other hand, the couple of series they did well at home against India and the the drawn series in England, both of them actually are not a part of the ODI Super League. So, you know, one way of looking at the format is, you know, it should have the context uh, so that, you know, uh, it stays relevant. But ironically, after 2023 World Cup, the ODS Super League won't be there at all. So every single league would be out of context and relevant. So if you were put in charge, like, I, I want to know how would you approach this format? Because in recent times, we have heard so much like, you know, it's an amalgamation of so many things coming together. The Stokes retirement or 
uh, people like Ashwin or Vaseem Akram giving their two cents on this format and everything. So how would you look at this format in future? Uh, I mean, I don't like one day cricket that much. So I'll probably just get rid of it. <laughs> so I maybe am not the right person to ask about that. Um, I don't think we need bilateral one-day games outside of friendlies before uh, World Cups. Um, I don't see. I don't. I don't see how it helps our schedules. If we're really going to get serious about the amount of cricket that we play, I think that is the most obvious thing. And I know how much the you know that league helped Netherlands and Ireland and you know the other sort of teams um around that that area but it's just you've got we've got so, every time you look up there's a new one day series being played in the moment that it doesn't i'd just much rather have proper qualification tournaments um rather than these endless leagues um and and i think we can fit that into the schedule and that can be a really interesting thing on its own you know um Maybe their top four teams or something from that previous World Cup get automatic qualification, um, and everyone else has to and the host team, and everyone else has to qualify. Um, I'd much rather those that sort of a level um, of tournament in one go. Everyone watching because it make makes sense and we care about it, and everyone wants to go to the World Cup, get their big slice of the pie, um, and uh, that would make a lot more sense to me than what we're currently trying to do. I think I first wrote about bilateral white ball cricket a long time ago. It's done well to hold on, but this, the amount of T20 leagues, just it doesn't make sense anymore. Um, and I don't think there is a long-term benefit um, by playing as much of this cricket outside of to the couple of countries that it, it was helping. And I, I would, I'm sure there are other ways that we can help those nations um, come through, but Long term, you can't. It is. It hasn't worked. There's too much cricket being played, and I think bilateral series, um, and especially that's what we're going to go back to. If they're going to go back to a bilateral series, I think um, it's a no for me. So I would, I would only play them as friendlies if and when you need them. What about uh, at domestic level, the list here? Because uh, you know. For example, England has completely overlooked this format uh, because the 100 runs alongside and the top players are there. So, for example, like Roy has been struggling this season in white ball. So, if he wants to go and improve his 50 over form, he, but he can't because he's contracted at the 100. So, do you think things like these would actually make it easier for players and board to sort of uh, just ditch that format uh, instead of the other two? Well, I don't think you need to ditch the format. Well, I don't think they're going to ditch the format anyway, and they're going to keep the World Cup because it, the one-day World Cup still pays a lot more than the T20 World Cup. Um, the form thing is, I know it matters, but it's kind of neither here nor there because the List A tournaments, if they stay, are going to be probably going to end up in the way that Australia plays, and which is at one end of the summer because that kind of makes the most sense. So you, you play them at the beginning of your summer, probably. Um, and there's always going to be issues with that, don't get me wrong. But um, I think that because teams are playing so much white ball cricket, and I do understand that they're different forms, but I do think that teams are going to worry less and less about list A um, uh, form in general, you know, the sort of the Nicholas Puran rule, right? Um, I think teams are going to pick more and more plays based on what they do in T20 cricket anyway, especially based on league cricket. But I do think that the List A tournaments should be moved to one block and they should be played. I, I think that would help interest in that tournament. Um, and, uh, and I think it makes a lot more sense. And I think that's probably one thing that you will start to see more and more is blocks of cricket and I think that's probably one of England's big problems at the moment is they don't really know how to get a block of cricket um the way that they want it which is you know maybe list a first class and then and then the 100 all sort of together and that that causes some of their problems do you see like any modifications in the format in coming time? Like Ravi Shastri has said, uh, talked about 40 over format or uh, a few years ago, Sachin Tendulkar once said that we can have 
two innings or 25 overseas. So any such modifications that can make it a bit more interesting in future. I mean, two innings is a terrible idea. I it, it, Australia tried to split it at one stage and it was the worst thing they ever did to one day cricket um, in domestically and they got rid of it. The two innings ideas, it's just two T20s back to back anyway. So I don't really, I've, I've never understood that. I never understood why Sachin thought that was a good idea. I, I moved over to the UK when Pro 40 was being played. I enjoyed that much more than um, one day cricket. But with T20 cricket, what I kind of feel like what's the point of having both, uh, of having a 20 over one and then a 40 over one? And maybe if we end up with T T10, maybe 40 over makes a bit more sense. But as a format of cricket, I thought what T what uh, Pro 40 did, or 40 over cricket, whatever you want to call it, did, was it took away 10 of the overs I didn't need. Um, and so I did think it was much better. Also, I think it's massively helped uh, England become one of the, te- the, the team that they are, especially in one-day cricket. Uh, but thanks for your questions, man. And I think I've got one last one here. Ekanth, you there? Yeah, hi. What's your question? So it's about lengths for uh, spinners and how it's different from uh, that of space bowlers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for spinners, I don't know, at least from what I uh, from what I can see, the good length, uh, with good being an adjective, uh, is fuller uh, for spinners than uh, for for pace bowlers. And mm-hmm. they kind of there are different kinds of spinners also. So how do you uh, determine what's a good length and, um, you know, based on based on conditions and different variables? Yeah, and how it's different from bases, yeah. Yeah, I think it's four, isn't it four to six metres, uh, which you would, you would say is a good good length for a spinner. And and for a seam bowler now, we more think of it as, used to be six to eight, but we now think of it as five to seven. So they're actually not as far off as what they used to be because bowlers are bowling a lot fuller with, when they're bowling seam. Um, you also get far less of a fluctuation of length. So you don't get, you know, you don't get as many very full balls from spinners and you don't get many balls that are much shorter than, uh, there's a couple of balls like Rashid Khan and Sun Onorain and T20 who bowl around that seven meter mark sometimes, but the majority of, um, spinners certainly don't bowl anywhere near that short unless they've dragged it down. Um, and it, it does, it's, there's probably needs to be different terminology but i think that we would have to actually think about it differently and put it on a different kind of pitch map if that makes sense um you know i always use the uh nathan lyon pitch map from when he think took seven or eight wickets at bangalore yeah um i use that a lot to show how much you can group the ball together as a spinner compared to as a seam bowler and um and i think that's i'm trying to think back to who wrote the piece it was one of the really good twitter analyst um sort of people but i can't remember if it was who it was so i don't want to say their name it wasn't flighted leggy um it might have been dave Uh, i forget i forget who it was but we what we can do is and and i did some of this with dom bess you can literally put a line up on the pitch and you can work out how many balls they over pitch or under pitch fairly easy for a spinner but you do need, it's a completely different kind of graphic than you need for quick bowlers. And for whatever reason, we haven't really got to that yet um, in um, in analysis uh, on TV. Um, I'm assuming team analysis does that because that's something that I, I certainly have looked at before. But yeah, it's just, it's just everything's a bit tighter, right? And you don't get bounces. Oh, well, you shouldn't um, unless Joe Root or Shane Warne's bowling. Um, and so... You know, you, you just need that little bit of that condensed sort of map. And I think that at the moment, um, we haven't really had, we haven't really got to that level. The actual analysis of spinners outside of some of the good stuff you see on Twitter is actually quite poor. Um, and I don't think it's, I think that we're so good at doing analysis for seam bowlers we haven't really been as good as doing analysis that helps batters or spinners so far. And I think part of the reason is these bigger maps. Also, you got to remember that if you've got Hawkeye data, this is really easy. A lot of the analysis is not done by Hawkeye data. It's literally someone pressing a dot on the pitch where they think the ball has landed, um, which is not as accurate. And I think with spinners, you need to be a lot more accurate than you do for seam bowlers. 
yeah that in for fast bowlers sometimes when there's no assistance of in uh, through the air you know there's discussions on how they should pull the lens back it or, or pitch it up when there is swing stuff like that so what's mm. the deal with spinners then like how does conditions dictate how they need to bowl what lens they need to pick and stuff like that yeah i don't yeah i don't think well i mean it's probably generally with spinners maybe speed or what Gareth Batty would call directness into the wicket, which is probably slightly more important. So that's the easiest thing to change with, with a spin bowler. You, your length as a spin bowler is so narrow, right, that I, I, I'm sure there are pitches when you can get a little bit shorter or maybe pitches we can get a little bit fuller. But if you're going to make a change, it's probably going to be angle on the crease or the speed of the deliveries rather than um, the length that you pitch it would be my guess. Um, because the length that you pitch it, let's say you're going to go fuller, you're actually then giving the batter a, a different chance um, of being able to do that. I'm not saying but the very top-level spinners, I'm sure, can do this. Nathan Lyon and, and Ashwin and... Um, maybe someone like Maharaj or someone like that, um, they probably can make those tiny little tweaks of their length. Um, I don't think as a normal spinner, that's probably the best way of doing it. As a normal spinner, it's probably the way that you use the crease and the pace that you bowl is probably slightly more important. I would think that even if you look at Ashwin, it's very, he doesn't change his length as much as you would think he would. Um, and he... So we're talking about Nathan Lyon having those, you know, really, really small pitch mat. Ashwin's is always a lot bigger than Nathan Lyon's because he tries a lot more things. Um, and that makes a, a lot more sense. But even within that, his lengths are still quite rigid. You know, he has that sort of mountain on his whatever his, I can't remember what his optimal length is, maybe five, five and a half meters, um, whatever his is. He has that sort of mountain there and then he plays around with it a little bit on either side. Um, I'm not sure how much he does that based on the pitch, but there are pitches, for instance, where if you get a pitch that is skidding on, uh, if you get a pitch that is um, just keeping low and normal, you can bowl that little bit shorter because you're keeping the stumps in play um, and you have the ability to trap them on the back foot or, or you know, get one to keep low as they try and play a cross-battered shot. But these are really marginal things, and I think more often – the thing that spinners probably change first is probably the pace that they bowl, whether they slow. I would, if I was being an analyst for a spinner and they were having trouble on a wicket, I would ask them to try bowl slightly quicker and to bowl slightly slower first um, before I'd be like, change your lengths. But I have seen pitches, to be fair, where being that little bit fuller or being that little bit shorter does help. Probably that little bit shorter makes a little bit more sense because if you're if you're that little bit fuller, you become you become what they call in cricket step and hit um, or really good players with their feet can, can do that. The only other time that you want to bowl a little bit shorter is probably to a sweeper. Um, and some bowlers obviously try that. Uh, thanks for your question though. Uh, just got a couple in the book. Now, oh, Rohan's asked my serious prediction for Australia versus South Africa at the end of the year. Rohan, I, I mean, if you think I can think that far ahead, um, you're doing fantastic. Um, uh, what else have we got here? Uh, oh. oh, Oren's asked about what was my experience like when working for Cricket Scotland. Yeah, I, I tweeted about this. I was only there for a month, I think. So I'm not going to pretend to be the world's expert on, um, on everything that's ever happened in Scottish cricket. What I found was is there were a lot of things that they made mistakes with when it came to the way they treated people based on how amateur they were. Uh, we had our, our tour manager was also like, he was like the tour manager, the team manager. I think he was also helping with academy um, stuff while he was on tour with us. And he was also the strength and conditioning trainer of the team. Even if you go to him with a legitimate th uh, complaint where you have amples of evidence backed up, I think it, that's just not a good system. And I felt there was a distance in many different ways within that team. Um, and there was, I thought there were issues 
I would, but I wouldn't just say, oh, there were racial issues. I just felt that there were issues that were happening because of how amateur it was. Um, and that's, and, and I said to this, this to someone on Twitter that that's where problems come from. It's that lack of systems. It's that lack of, I was going to say due diligence, but that's an oversight is where all these problems come from, right? You have very similar kinds of people who come from very similar kinds of background running Scottish cricket, and then you have this new group coming through and they don't quite gel. And that the, the, I think the really interesting word they kept using was institutionally racist because that, it's not, to me, it wasn't just about institutional racism. It was almost about institutional otherness. It's not the only problem they've had within Scottish cricket. They obviously lost their last CEO um, amid bullying claims uh, against women as well. And again, it's that lack of oversight. It's a lack of pe having people in the right position. And it really is, it's a really amateur organisation. It And it's come on in the last seven years so much. In 2015, it was basically like a club team on tour. They are getting so much better. But that it's that amateur side of it that allows for these errors to happen and you don't have the correct systems in place. I, I haven't talked to Majid Haq or, um, or um, some of the other players um, directly or some of the younger players who were, you know, there. But I hear what they're saying and I kind of get what they're saying even if I didn't see it specifically in front of me. I just felt that there was something missing. And look, I've worked in franchises where exactly the same thing has happened before. Um, I've done consultancy for teams. I've covered teams where you could see it happening, right? And it's not just this racism thing. It's this othering thing. If you don't fit that main, main crowd, that sort of club cricket nature of the game pushes people out and they don't feel comfortable. And then they're not the right kind of person. And that doesn't matter if it's your ethnicity, your skin tone, your sexuality, your gender, whatever it may be. That's what I found at Scotland. I, I can't remember what I wrote in my report, but I did feel like I tried to touch on these sorts of things when I wrote a report at the end. I don't know if I mentioned race directly. I'd have to go back and have a look at it. But I certainly felt that there was an issue there um, and that it wasn't being looked at correctly. And when when they, these problems started coming out publicly, I wasn't surprised i suppose is the best thing even if i didn't see well i think a lot of the racist stuff i, I don't know how much of the racist stuff is is of the last few years um because i haven't read the report yet but a lot of the very racist stuff seems to be from quite a few years earlier but that sort of institutional side of things that i definitely saw that othering that outsider stuff i definitely saw that um yeah uh Thoughts on David Warner potentially joining a UAE franchise instead of the Big Bash? He's going to get paid more. It's going to happen. Ellen um, says, if you were England coach selector, who would you want opening the batting in the first South Africa test? My answer is going to be the same as it has been for a long time, Alan. Alistair Cook. And Giovon says, why is West Indies so terrible at ODIs? All right, I've got to go, but I'm going to answer this because I like this question. I believe the reason is that they don't have any batters. And I think in test cricket, their bowling lineup has been so strong, it's been able to carry them and win them enough test matches that we give them a pass. We, we don't think they're a great team, but occasionally they play really good, right? And we go, oh, there's something there. I don't think they have that same level of white ball bowlers or certainly white ball one day attacking bowlers who can take wickets. And if you have a look at that, they don't have the ability for their batters to bat long time and make runs. And I'll probably be doing this in a video soon if I get a chance to come around on it. And I think that is why West Indies struggle so much because I think you need to be you need two or three batters who can regularly make 60, 70, and 80 at a decent clip. I don't think West Indies have that. And I think that's their biggest problem. And I think they can overcome that with bowling in test cricket. And I think they can overcome that occasionally uh, with hitting and their thought processes when it comes to T20 cricket. Um, and I think that's the major problem. Um, uh, and so that is um, certainly uh, what I would say. Um, Oren has said, Caribbean Cricket Podcast said they're doing something with you very soon. Yeah, watch this space. Anyway, 
Thank you to everyone. This was a cracking uh, uh, wagon wheel. Um, we've struggled to get some questions recently, but the room lit up today and some great ones in the written text as well. And obviously really interesting ones from Patreon and some great questions along, uh, great questions from all three um, uh, uh, versions of the question making. But if you can support us, um, I would say keep an eye out on 99.94. If you don't have the app, I would go and download the app things are about to start happening with 99.94 and uh, you might be able to pick up some of them uh, coming through the Red Inca stream very soon. Thank you very much and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on the 99.94 Network. For more information about us, go to 9994dm.com and you can also sign up for our beta launch. And if you have listened this long, you probably like what we do. And that is great. So please rush over and support us on Patreon, which has many extra advantages the podcast doesn't have, like asking earlier questions. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is our sound maestro. Bakundra Bandredi presses record on the videos and then falls asleep. Orajasi Sampati makes the podcast into video gold. And Shubanka Bhattacharya makes pretty, pretty graphics. Mm-hmm.